Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 14. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our series through this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, and my goal this morning is to cover verses 6 through 13, and the title of the message is Urgent Messages Before Judgment Falls. Urgent Messages Before Judgment Falls. This is a heavy passage of Scripture filled with encouragement, but also uh, some pretty heavy truth uh, that will rock our worlds. And, uh, but that's one of the benefits of going through Scripture a verse at a time. Uh, we deal with what we encounter in the text of God's holy and perfect and inspired Word of God. In a recent article uh, on the Gospel Coalition website, I believe it was actually this past week, Alistair Begg uh, talks about how a man named John Reith, uh, who later became Lord Reith, uh, helped to establish the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, back in the early 1920s, and how he served as the first general director of the BBC. He stood six feet, six inches tall, and was a larger-than-life presence. He was a man of deep moral convictions, which were instilled in him by his father, who himself was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. Consistent with his moral convictions, John Reith's original vision for the BBC was to feature the very best of every field of society, and that included giving religion its proper place in its programming schedule. However, as Alistair Begg says in his article, As the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to those present that the world was changing and that the BBC did not need to continue with its religious programming any longer. People were no longer interested in religion, he said, And the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Well, having about all he could take from this young man, John Reith told him to sit down. And he did. And then Reith stood up to his full six foot, six inch height and said these words to this young man and to all who were in attendance. And the words he spoke were these, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And Alistair Begg says, you know what? It will. The church will still stand when the BBC and CNN and Fox dwindle and die. God's kingdom will stand when every organization an institution, and empire meets its end. That is a truth that we need to remember in our day. And it's a truth that the original readers of the book of Revelation 
needed to be reminded of also. Think about how enduring the Roman Empire must have seemed to the people living in the Apostle John's day. Yet eventually the Roman Empire met its end and Christianity was there to stand over its grave. Looking ahead to the coming days of the tribulation period, imagine how people all over the world are going to think during the days of the great tribulation. To them, it will seem as if Christianity has become obsolete, and it will seem that the reign of the Antichrist will endure forever. Yet the prophecy of Revelation is clear. Christ and his followers will stand over the grave of the empire of the Antichrist. The time period that we are in right now in our study through the book of Revelation is right around the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period that is to come. Seven seals of judgment have been broken, and the seven trumpets of judgment have also sounded, and the fallout of the seventh trumpet is seen in the devil's persecution of faithful Israel, who is driven into the wilderness to be nourished and protected by God, we have learned for three and a half years. We learned that in Revelation 12. Then there is war in heaven, and Satan is cast out of heaven and falls to earth in a rage, knowing that his time is short. He calls forth the Antichrist to world domination in Revelation 13 and calls forth the false prophet who begins to perform signs and wonders and persuades the world to worship the beast and to receive the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand. Next up will be the seven bowls of God's wrath that will be poured out upon the earth. And we'll see this beginning in Revelation chapter 16. These bowls of wrath represent God's final cataclysmic judgments upon the world followed by the second coming of Christ. But before these judgments fall, what we find here in our passage today in Revelation 14 is a flurry of messages communicated with utmost urgency. Three of these messages are delivered by angelic beings flying across the sky. And the fourth message is delivered by a voice from heaven and actually gets reinforced by an explanatory word from the Holy Spirit himself. We're actually going to encounter today the first time the Holy Spirit is directly quoted in the book of Revelation. These are four messages that we're going to look at this morning. And as we look at these messages, I I expect that they will mark us deeply leaving us encouraged as well as sobered, bringing us joy and also bringing us tears. But they are words that we must believe and hold fast to and stand ready to declare to the world that we find ourselves in today. That's how we'll break down our study of this passage this morning. We'll observe four urgent messages delivered before God's final judgments fall. 
four urgent messages. And the first of these, let's word it this way, an angel gospelizes the world, calling upon all to give God his due. An angel gospelizes the world, calling upon all to give God his due. Now, we looked at this last Sunday, but let's take a quick look at it again. Observe what John says in verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. This is about where the sun would be at high noon. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And this, as we saw last Sunday, is a most remarkable thing. Not that the angel is flying in the sky and declaring a message, but that after all of the wickedness that people have manifested in these awful days of the tribulation period, this angel is actually flying across the sky preaching the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus, preaching to a sinful world that Christ died for their sins and that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day and that he was ascended to God's right hand and preaching the message that all who believe in Jesus will have the forgiveness of all of their sins and be saved forever. In all likelihood, this angel is delivering this message right around the time that the false prophet is preaching his own version of the gospel, calling upon the world to trust in the Antichrist. And this angel is getting this opposite message out, calling upon the world to believe in Christ. And according to this verse, this angel does not just preach this message to the Jews alone, but preaches this message to every nation and tribe and tongue and people which means he will fly over what is now the United States of America. He will fly over Rome. He will fly over the Middle East. He will fly over the most remote islands in the Pacific. And he will fly over the most isolated tribes in the Amazon jungle, preaching the gospel to the whole world until everybody has heard And this angel will follow his gospel presentation with a call for a response. In verse 7, the text says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Notice how God-centered this angel's call is. Fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him, the angel says. That should be the ultimate aim of our preaching of the gospel to people today, not simply to give them a better life, but to make them right with God so that God gets the glory from them that He is due. Now, we're not told this in this passage, but I would imagine that many around the world will hear this angel's message and will be saved. 
They'll believe in Christ and, and be saved wonderfully. But we know from later in Revelation that most of the world is going to reject this angel's message and they will be blaspheming God in the coming chapters, which is crazy to imagine anyone not believing this message of the gospel from this angel. Some of us might think, man, if, if, something, like, if something like a flying angel could go around the world and preach the gospel to everyone, surely everyone would believe. But this is not true. And this is not what happens in the book of Revelation. Most people who see and hear this angel's message are not going to believe. Some who hear this gospel invitation will be inclined to brush it off as some blast from the past. And they're thinking Christianity is obsolete and the empire of the Antichrist is on the rise They will be so caught up in the world system of their day that they will find it hard to personally break with this world system and cast their lot with what seems like a dying religion. Such people need to hear an additional word of warning. And this leads us to the second urgent message delivered before God's final judgments fall. Number two, another angel, a second angel, declares the imminent doom of Babylon. Another angel declares the imminent doom of Babylon. So the first angel is flying across the sky, preaching the gospel, calling upon the world to respond and give God his due. But there's another angel flying behind him. And observe what John sees in verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. This is the first mention of Babylon in the book of Revelation, but it will not be the last. We will learn more about Babylon in Revelation 16, 17, and 18. For now... Just know that in the book of Revelation, Babylon is both a great city and a system that will dominate the world. Perhaps the city referred to as Babylon will be located at the site of ancient Babylon, or perhaps it will be somewhere else. Either way, in this future day, Babylon will represent the Antichrist worldwide political, economic, and religious empire. We actually see this indicated in verse 8 where we're told that Babylon will transcend nationalities and wield a corrupting influence over, look what the text says, all the nations, making all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality or porneia. Evidently, Babylon will so cater to the sexual lusts of the inhabitants of the earth and provide a means of satisfying those lusts that the world will be held under the sway of Babylon. 
In fact, just from what is said about Babylon later in Revelation, we can develop a pretty sick profile. You can write down these references in Revelation 17.5. Babylon is called the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. In Revelation 17.6, Babylon is spoken of as being drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. In Revelation 18.2, it is said of Babylon that she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit. In Revelation 18.3, it says, All the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. In Revelation 18.5, it is said that Babylon's sins have piled up as high as heaven. Think about that. Back in Genesis 11, at the site of ancient Babylon, people come together and they want to build a tower that reaches as high as heaven. Well, here we learn that Babylon's sins pile up as high as heaven. In Revelation 18.7, it is said that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. And according to Revelation 14.8, Babylon will soon fall under the weight of God's judgment, under the weight of her own sins. In verse 8, this angel declares, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And he speaks in the past tense as if this is already true. Which means that you can be sure that when this angel flies across the sky speaking this message, people will hear it and they'll laugh and scoff and say, Babylon is not fallen. Look, Babylon is doing just fine. Little do they realize that in a matter of months, Babylon will lie in a smoldering heap, never to rise again. Though Babylon may be standing at this precise moment that this angel is speaking his message, its doom is so certain that it is as good as done. And because the city of Babylon will be so central to the world of its day, when Babylon falls, the whole world system will collapse with it. This announcement from this angel about the imminent fall of Babylon would serve as a warning to the people of the earth not to put their trust in Babylon, but to put their trust in Jesus, whose kingdom will endure forever. Jesus' kingdom will never fall. And for believing saints of God who are hiding out right now and being persecuted for their faith, this angelic message from the sky will encourage them with the assurance that the end of Babylon is very near. And so this will be very good news reaching the ears of those who are saints of God during this time. We all know how horribly 
So many Jews suffered in concentration camps during World War II. Near the end of the war, when the Allied victory was absolutely certain, Allied planes would fly over some of these concentration camps, dropping leaflets, informing them that the Allied forces were closing in and that the war was all but over. One Jewish woman that I was reading this week described receiving one of these messages. She picked up the leaflet and read it, and she said, and I quote, it was the most wonderful message I have ever received in my life. It gave me tremendous hope. And that's how this angel's announcement of the imminent fall of Babylon will encourage the saints on earth at this time who are hearing this message. They will know that the war is soon to be over and the moment of victory will soon be arriving and the certainty of that will give them the encouragement that they need to hold on and persevere in faith for a little bit longer. But make no mistake, this message about the imminent doom of Babylon is targeted at the unsaved also. This angel's message is a warning to those who put their trust in Babylon that one day they're going to be very sorely disappointed because Babylon will soon come to ruin. Anything that we put our trust in other than Jesus Christ ultimately will come to ruin. And for those in the world of this day, it's Babylon's doom being prophesied here. And for those who reject Christ and put their trust in Babylon, the news is even worse than that. This leads us to the third urgent message and the most sobering one that is delivered in this passage before God's final judgments fall. Number three, another angel. This is a relay. Another angel declares the eternal doom of each person who follows the beast. Another angel declares the eternal doom of each person who follows the beast or the Antichrist. In verse 9 and 10, John continues and says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. The fact that this is the angel's message tells us that this angel, this third angel, is speaking this message to the world right around the time that The false prophet is calling upon all men everywhere to worship the beast and to receive the mark of the beast on their forehead or hand. And this angel, right around that time, is going around saying, don't get this mark and don't worship the beast. If you do, and if you persist in doing this, you will be damned forever. Notice the literal language of the angel here. Literally, he says, if anyone 
is continuously worshiping the beast and his image and is continuously receiving or welcoming a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Many commentators take this statement to mean that once a person makes the decision to worship the beast and receive his mark, his fate, his eternal fate, is in that moment sealed. This very well may be the case. Given the fact that once a person receives the mark of the beast, they probably won't even have the inclination or capacity to repent anymore. But it's possible here that this angel is pronouncing judgment on those who are persisting in worshiping the beast without repentance and who are persisting in welcoming this mark without repentance. I don't know about you, though. I would never want to risk it. Even if there is the possibility of repentance and salvation But either way, this message from the angel is a very stern warning not to worship the beast and not to receive his mark. The warning of verse 10 is that anyone who worships the beast or receives his mark, verse 10, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is as strong a language of judgment as anything found anywhere on the pages of Scripture. And it could not be more out of step with modern, even religious sensibilities. And by the way, if you think this language used by this angel is antiquated and doesn't fit with the times in which we live, just realize that this is actually a message from the future. An angel is going to make this declaration from the sky in a future day. So if anything, this is a message ahead of its time. And according to this angel, the person who persists in worshiping the beast will be made to drink of God's wrath, mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. This kind of language means that God's wrath will not be diluted one iota by his mercy or by his grace. It will be pure, unmitigated wrath from God for the one who refuses to worship Christ and chooses to worship the beast instead. And according to verse 10 here, the person who is made to drink of God's wrath will be tormented, the text says, with fire and brimstone, which is sulfur. In other words, the fate that will befall these worshipers of the beast will be the fate that befalls all unrepentant sinners. In Revelation 21.8, God himself speaks from his throne And says, for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Some people, even who 
profess Christ are quick to assume that hell is not a place of literal fire. I wonder how they can possibly know that or arrive at that interpretation of the data that is found in Scripture. In Matthew 18.8 and Matthew 25.4, Jesus speaks of hell as being a place of the eternal fire. In Matthew 13.42, Jesus tells us that those who commit lawlessness will be cast into, he says, and I quote, the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, unquote. In Mark 9.43, Jesus speaks of hell as the place of unquenchable fire. In Mark 9.48, Jesus speaks of hell as the place where the fire is not quenched. I'm thinking we ought to take Jesus at his word. After all, he is God, and he is the foremost expert on hell in the Bible. No one spoke on the topic of hell more than Jesus did. And his language in the Gospels is perfectly consistent with the language used by this angel here in Revelation 14. And notice something else that this angel says. This third angel flying in mid-heaven is promising here in verse 10 that those who worship the beast and receive his mark will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This final collection of prepositional phrases is interesting And it's designed to show the awfulness of hell. As the commentator Robert Mounts says regarding this, to suffer in the presence of the host of heaven and the Lamb is not to lessen the fierceness of the judgment, but to make it more grievous. A common misunderstanding of hell or the lake of fire is that It involves separation from God. So let's take a moment to think about that. Uh, On one level, this belief is true. You can write down 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, where Paul speaks about the wicked who will, he says, pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That's an inspired statement from the Apostle Paul, and it's a true statement. Those who will be judged by God in hell will be cast away from his loving presence, from his countenance of mercy and grace. And yet, here in Revelation 14.10, we're told that the person who rejects the gospel and persist in worshiping the beast will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. That's Jesus. And to suffer in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the lamb is to suffer in the very presence of God, right? After all, we just learned in verse 10 that those suffering This torment are being forced to drink from the cup of the wrath of whom? God. It's his wrath. 
In other words, those suffering for all of eternity will experience not the absence of God, but the presence of God forever as they experience his anger and his wrath for all of eternity. As Michael Horton says, more than anything else, hell is about God. Whatever the exact nature of the physical punishments, the real terror awaiting the unrepentant is God himself and his inescapable presence forever with his face turned against them. The most frightening reality of hell is that the God whom the wicked tried to be rid of in this life is the very God they will not be able to rid themselves of in the afterlife. The face of God, the face of Christ will be forever against them in wrath. As the commentator Daniel Aiken says, those in hell will have a constant awareness and knowledge of the God they rejected and this will only enhance the horror and the torment that they will experience. How long will this torment last? This angel says in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. How long will this torment last? My goodness, five minutes of what's being described here would be unimaginably awful. And yet, we're being told here that it will go on forever and ever. Such language used here in verse 11 provides no wiggle room for ultimate universalism or any kind of temporal punishment or the soul being annihilated out of existence. This angel says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. So does the punishment of hell go on forever, according to this passage? Actually, the answer is no. According to this text, it goes on forever and ever. The word forever does not go far enough in John's mind. And in the mind of this angel, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And the experience in hell of those who worship the beast without repentance is characterized here as torment and as them having no rest day and night. In other words, they will have no rest endlessly, never experiencing a reprieve from the conscious torment of their suffering forever and ever. And let's not kid ourselves. These are hard words. But God is being good to us to give us these words so that we know the truth of the matter. And he is good to give us a way of escape through his son, Jesus Christ, who suffered God's wrath on the cross so that those who believe in Jesus don't have to suffer this wrath being described here. The truth taught in this passage regarding eternal damnation should hit us 
very hard to the point of reducing us to tears. But it should not seem unfair to us at all. In fact, if eternal punishment seems unduly harsh to us, it would only be because we don't understand the gravity of sin. And we don't understand the gravity of sin because we don't understand the majesty and the greatness of God. In other words, eternal suffering in hell offends us because we're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. What we ought to do is this. Rather than looking at sin as some small thing and then looking at eternal punishment and being offended by it, we should look at the eternal punishment of hell and then look back at sin and say, wow, sin must really be that bad. Rejecting Christ must really be that bad. Think about it this way. You measure the greatness of a crime by the standard of the greatness of the one against whom the crime is committed, right? Therefore, those who turn away from God and reject Christ and worship the blaspheming beast are guilty of a crime that is as infinitely great as God is infinitely good. So the only fitting punishment is a punishment that is infinite, that goes on forever and ever. And let's take this one step further. You realize, guys, what the doctrine of eternal punishment means. It means that a person who has rejected Christ, who is suffering the torments of hell for one 100,000 trillion years is still just as guilty as he was at the beginning. No amount of suffering in hell for however long can ever diminish or take away one iota of that person's guilt. As R.C. Sproul once said, there is an almost ontological impossibility for justice ever to prevail, even in hell, because eternity is not long enough to satisfy the heinousness of the crime that I have committed against my Creator and against my God, who is infinitely perfect in every way. And yet, according to the gospel that we preach, Jesus can take away 100% of a person's guilt through his atoning death for them at the cross. Aren't you grateful for Jesus? When a sinner comes to Jesus with their infinite guilt, meriting eternal punishment in the lake of fire, and they come to Jesus and believe in him as their Lord and Savior, their sins are washed away and that infinite guilt is removed. Through Jesus' death at the cross, the believing sinner can experience a removal of guilt that a trillion millennia in hell could never remove because Jesus is infinite in his righteousness. 
and his death can atone for our infinite guilt. The sad truth is that many in our world today think that they can just do good things here and there and improve their performance and somehow atone for a guilt that even eternity could, in hell could atone for? Only Jesus, only Jesus can take away your guilt if you come to him and bow before him at the foot of the cross. Maybe right now you're thinking, okay, so this eternal judgment foretold in this passage is looks like for those in the future who worship the Antichrist and receive his mark, well, I definitely don't believe in Jesus, but I'm glad I don't worship the Antichrist. We'll be very careful. In 1 John 2, 22, the Bible says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. In 1 John 4, 3, the Bible says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world, and you see it displayed. The spirit of the Antichrist displayed in the lives of those who reject Jesus. John's language here in 1 John, in these two passages I just read, teaches us that the world, even today, is divided into two classes. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ and those who are of the Antichrist and who follow him. And those who deny the truth about Christ and refuse to repent of their sins and believe in him as their Lord and Savior will have the same judgment awaiting them that this angel describes here in Revelation chapter 14. This is why, once again, God himself speaks from his throne in Revelation 21.8 and says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And now we know why the first angel in verses 6 and 7 of Revelation 14 is going around evangelizing the world with the gospel message and calling upon the world to believe in Christ before judgment falls, giving mankind this final opportunity to repent And believe in Christ and be spared this awful fate that this third angel is declaring. These angels are delivering this message because on a meaningful level that is worth writing down in Scripture, the Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.9 that God is not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance People who do respond to the gospel and believe in Jesus will have Jesus as their strong tower to protect them from this wrath. 
And not only will they have this protection from God's eternal wrath, but when they die, they will die in the Lord and they will have only blessedness awaiting them. And this leads us to the fourth and final urgent message delivered before the final judgment falls. Number four, a voice from heaven declares the blessedness of those who die in the Lord. A voice from heaven declares the blessedness of those who die in the Lord. John hears a voice from heaven and he's going to tell us in verse 13 what this voice will say. But before he tells us what this voice says, he prefaces it by saying in verse 12, look at this verse, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. What John says here in verse 12 is connected in part to what has already been said by these angels. The saints of God living during the tribulation period who will hear the messages of these three angels will be all the more motivated to persevere in faith in Jesus Christ. These announcements from the angels are not just for the benefit of the unsaved, but are delivered for the encouragement of the elect to encourage them to keep the faith to the very end and to not let themselves be deceived by the Antichrist and his false prophet. But when John says, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus, his statement also serves as a preface to what he knows is to follow. Because of what John knows he's about to write will be even more encouraging to the perseverance in faith of the saints. Listen to what John hears in verse 13 that he thinks ought to encourage saints to persevere in obedience to God and faith in Jesus. He says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write. And he wants John to write this because he wanted you and I to hear this message. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Notice that this voice from heaven does not say blessed are the dead who die because that's not a universally true statement, right? Instead, this voice from heaven says blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Those who are in Jesus, who have put their trust in Jesus, have nothing to fear from death. Even after dying, they will be blessed in such a way that they are to be envied for their blessedness. Even death cannot separate them from the love of Christ. Even death cannot in any way remove them from their blessed state. In fact, death serves as their gateway into an even more blessed state than they ever knew in this life. And that all makes sense to us, right? We know from Scripture to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in heaven. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We know this is true. But why does this voice from heaven say in verse 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on? Why does he say that? from now on. Well, part of the point here in verse 13 is that those saints who die during the coming 
great tribulation will have no disadvantage by virtue of the fact that they're dying during this time period. They will be just as blessed as every saint who has ever died in the Lord in any age. But another part of the point here is that those who die in the Lord during the great tribulation period will be uniquely blessed to have lived and died during a time when evil and suffering and the challenges of remaining faithful to Christ will be at their worst. What is that unique blessing? Well, let's let the Holy Spirit explain that to us. The Holy Spirit hears what this voice from heaven says about the blessedness of those who die in the Lord from now on. And verse 13 ends this way. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. You've all heard of mansplaining? This is spirit-splaining that's going on here, where the Spirit is telling us why those who die in the Lord during the Great Tribulation will be, on some level, uniquely blessed. And the first reason he gives is that those who die in the Lord during this time will die so that they may rest from their labors. The word translated labors here in verse 13 speaks of laborious toil, labors that are done under great stress and exertion to the point of weariness and exhaustion. And we can all understand why this word would be used, right? Imagine how difficult life will be for the saints of God during this coming time period in history. Imagine what a labor it will be to remain faithful to the Lord and to keep serving him when the whole world everywhere is against you and out to kill you. And when your enemies are actually performing miracles and calling down fire from heaven in order to lead people astray. And when you can't even buy and sell, and yet you have to find some way to survive and serve the Lord. Imagine how many deaths of fellow believers you will have to process and mourn. Imagine the physical care under awful conditions that will have to be provided for those who have been tortured for Christ during this time. Imagine the labor involved and even gathering with a few fellow Christians during this time to serve one another in ways that we don't even think about today. Laboring for Christ and persevering in faith will never be harder for a Christian than it will be during the great tribulation period. In fact, speaking of these days, in Mark Chapter 13, write down this reference, Mark 13, verses 19 through 20. Jesus says, For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now, and never shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. That's how bad these days will be, even for the elect. So when saints who are living in this time die in the Lord, 
their unique blessedness will lie in the fact that they can now rest from their unusually laborious toil associated with living and serving Christ during this most difficult time. And yet, wonderfully, even though on the other side of death they are able to rest from their labors, the works they did during the Great Tribulation will not rest in eternity. In fact, the Spirit says here in verse 13 that their deeds follow with them. In other words, their deeds will accompany them. Everywhere they go, their deeds that they did on earth will go. The legendary deeds that these souls will do during the tribulation period will be epic deeds that will be the stuff of eternal renown in heaven. For all of eternity, these saints will be heroes because they will be known as the ones who remain faithful and serve Christ during the worst days of human history. Christ will reward them for their good works during this time period, and fellow saints in heaven will approach them through eternity and want to speak about their exploits done during the Great Tribulation. When we all get to heaven and the tribulation saints arrive there too, all of us are going to want to meet these brothers and sisters and celebrate the deeds they did all to the glory of Christ. That said, while this verse is especially true for believers who die in the Lord during the great tribulation, this passage is also true for those who die in the Lord even now. When a believer in Christ dies today, they're blessed because they're with the Lord in heaven. That's blessing enough. They're blessed because they can now rest from their earthly toil. And they're blessed by the rewards that Christ will give them for the good deeds that they did while in the body here on earth. And there will be a sense in which they will spend eternity in heaven learning about how their deeds impacted others. Think about that. In heaven, your deeds will follow you. People will come up to you and say, you may not have known this, but you did such and such. You said such and such in a given moment. And that made a difference in my life and produced fruit in my life. They'll say, you don't know me, but uh, you led a person to Christ who then led another person to Christ, who then led another person to Christ, who led me to Christ and I want to thank you. And you'll be like, wow, I had no idea all the good that came from that conversation that I had with that person when I was on earth. And heaven will get to talk with each other and trace the genealogy of all of the good things done and see how it all weaves together in a beautiful tapestry and our deeds and the deeds of others will follow and accompany us throughout all eternity. Everyone who has ever died in the Lord is blessed for all these reasons. But here in Revelation 14, we're told that these particular saints dying during the second half of the tribulation will be especially blessed for their faith during this time will be a most remarkable faith. Their deeds will be truly noteworthy and the deeds they do will live on 
and will follow them through all of eternity. There's a lot for us to think about from our passage today, and we pondered some of these things as we have gone along through the text this morning. For one, none of us ought to be complaining about the days in which we live today, right? God has raised us up for a time such as this. Let us do the good works that he has given us to do. Let us raise our children to live righteously in this age that God has raised them up for, knowing that our works will follow with us through eternity. I also have to say that I love how balanced the message is coming from these angelic beings as they declare the fullness of what God wants them to declare. And they don't sugarcoat it, and they don't hide anything that God tells them to declare. The first angel declares the good news of the gospel and calls for a response. The second angel comes right along after him and warns of the coming fall of this world system. And the third angel comes along after him and declares the eternal damnation awaiting anyone who refuses to receive Christ and who worships the beast and receives his mark without repentance. And then a voice from heaven speaks to John announcing the eternal blessedness of those who die in the Lord, speaking of the eternal rest and the eternal reward of those who die in Christ. I just love the balance of all of that. The combined message of this whole passage represents a beautiful balance and reminds us that we in this day must be faithful to declare the full truth of what God has called us to declare to the lost. The good news and the bad, the news of salvation and the news of judgment, preaching the mercy of God and the severity of of God, preaching the parts of the Bible that the world loves to hear and preaching the parts of the Bible that makes our world today angry. We should declare to the lost the good news of salvation through Christ and we should be faithful to preach to them the news of God's judgment if they reject his son. And we should be faithful to speak the full promise of God to those who do believe in Christ Not only does the world need to hear these things from us, we need to hear them often because the proclamation of such truths nurtures our faith and encourages us to persevere in Christ. One day, you and I are going to stand at the grave of this world system We must believe this to be true and keep these truths in this passage ever before us and be ready to speak them to one another and speak them to our world today, regardless of the cost. If you're here this morning and you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, my heart is, is heavy for you today, and your heart ought to be heavy as well. What's hit me looking at this passage is that it's almost an impossibly heavy burden to be a human being created in God's image, to be a being 
who will live somewhere forever and be held eternally accountable for the choices that we make. I get the temptation of some to say, no, we just evolved and when we die, we're done. I get the temptation to believe that because it's a heavy burden to be a human being created in the image of God who will live somewhere forever and will be held eternally accountable for the choices that we make. Perhaps you don't think the choices you make are all that important, but evidently they are. A trillion years from now, you will be living somewhere. And the difference maker in where you will be living and what your experience will be will be Jesus Christ and what you did with him. This morning, you have had life and death put before you. The eternal blessedness of those who believe in Christ and the eternal judgment of those who don't. What will your decision be? Will you heed the words of our passage today and run to Christ and put your trust in him? Or will you reject him and keep putting your trust in other things that are doomed to disappoint you? I plead with you, run to Jesus Christ this morning. Believe in him, call upon his name, and receive the salvation that he freely offers to you through his shed blood at the cross. He promises that anyone who comes to me, I will never, in no way, ever cast them out. He will receive you, and he will save you if you come to him in repentance and faith and call upon him to be your Lord and Savior. Pay homage today. Pay homage to the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all who put their trust and find refuge in him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are crushed under the weight of a passage like this. It's, it's too much to even fully process, but this is truth. And we ask that you would give us hearts that just receive this truth, embrace it, and believe it and declare it to the world. And I pray that you would look upon any person gathered here, Lord, who has not yet put their trust in you and look upon them with mercy and grace. Give them the gift of faith and repentance that they would come running to you today without delay and find in Jesus an atonement that can come no other way. An atonement for their infinite guilt, an atonement that an eternity of suffering could never erase, but can be fully erased in an instant through Jesus and through his shed blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have in Jesus. 
Help us, Lord, to go into all the world and tell people about him. Throughout Riverside and throughout the world. Empower us as we do so, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said,